Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them to uh, Hebrews 11. We're going to look at verses 17 through 19, your Bibles or your app or whatever it is that you have. You know, last week we looked at Sarah's faith, and we wanted to understand what was the key to her faith. Well, this week it's Abraham himself, of course, her husband. Excuse me, what I find most interesting in this passage, uh, not just this particular passage, but through the chapter, Abraham gets most of the ink in this chapter. He gets 12 full verses. Moses, who's also a great Old Testament character, gets a mere seven. And then there's all these other really fabulous characters. They maybe get a mention in one verse, and then a whole bunch of people, named and unnamed, just get summed up at the end in eight verses. Now, you're probably wondering, what in the world does that matter? Right? That statistical analysis actually tells us something about the content that's in the author's mind to communicate to us. And I think it says that while all the stories that are mentioned in chapter 11 are important, I think he wants us to pay focus, uh, special attention, and put our focus on Abraham himself. And here's why I think so Abraham is a really good study for how the Lord calls us to a life of faith then takes us as young believers, weak in the faith, and then grows us up to mature believers as we walk with God over a lifetime. You know, for 100 years, Abraham walked with God through, as the hymn writer says, many dangers, toils, and snares. And in that lesson, we learn that Abraham came to trust God's unsurpassing faithfulness. Now, just think about this. There was no one else around to disciple Abraham. Nobody. So God, being a good father, he did it himself. Wouldn't you love it if you had just God alone to disciple you? You would. Okay, well, someday that will be the case. But God then raised Abraham to run his race faithfully to the end because he was to become the father of a multitude of nations and be a blessing to the world. Now, if we pay attention, we can see ourselves in Abraham's stages of growth. Like every new believer, we were just like Abraham. We were your basic garden variety pagan idolater who responded to the call of God to trust Christ for our salvation and follow him wholeheartedly with our lives. And like Abraham, we left our old lives behind and we began the new process of being transformed into the character of Christ. Now, we call that sanctification, which is God setting us apart to be made holy. And in Hebrews 11, uh, 17 through 19, the author takes us to a scene in Genesis chapter 22 that was surely the greatest test of Abraham's life. So let's first of all read the text from Hebrews, then we'll pray, and then we'll go to the text in Genesis. So the writer of the Hebrews says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, that's a very important word, just keep it there in your mind, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Abraham and how you revealed yourself through his life to us. And we pray that uh, your spirit will help us now to understand what it is that you are saying in your word. But more than understand it, Lord, we want to apply it to our lives. And we pray for your help to do that, that we also might grow in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the author wants us to understand, that is the author of Hebrews, to understand how Abraham successfully passed this test so that we can apply that same wisdom to our lives when we face impossible-looking tests ourselves. So let's go to the story in Genesis chapter 22 and see if there's anything in that story uh, that points out how Abraham found the way to pass his test. So let's, let's uh, look at this crisis of faith. Uh, the author, even of this text, tells us, uh, gives us a key insight. He calls this a test of faith. So we're alerted. We have insider information that Abraham doesn't have at this point. So in verses 1 to 3, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son. Your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Now at this point, We've got to be wondering, what's going on inside the head of, of Abraham? What, what's going on inside this man's heart? Is he, is he perplexed? Is he skeptical? Is he wondering if he really heard from God? We are not told explicitly, but we might infer something from his actions. A couple of things. First of all, we might infer that by Abraham's actions, which are purposefully mentioned. Notice the, the progress of those actions. He rose, saddled his donkey took the young man, and then he cut the wood. He rose, saddled, took, and cut. Now, the order seems backwards. I mean, if it were me, the first thing I would be doing is cutting the wood. Cutting the wood, gathering my young men, saddling the donkey, putting the wood on the donkey, and then going. Now, some commentators think that this gives us some insight into the state of mind that Abraham may have had, that, that he was... He was confused by what God's command was, and he couldn't really think straight. Well, perhaps that's true. We don't know. There's nothing in the text that says it, but it's certainly true humanly. Wouldn't you feel that way if God had told you to sacrifice your child up for God, uh, 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 as a burnt offering? Well, the second thing we're told is that Abraham immediately obeyed. He immediate got, immediately got up. When God told him to go, he went, just like at the beginning of his call at the very beginning of his walk with God in chapter 12. Now let's move on to the arrival there at Mount Moriah. Uh, verses 4 through 6 say this, On the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, 
Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire, that is like a flint. He didn't actually have a real fire, but a a flint that would create a fire. And he took the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. So for three days, they're, they're hiking to this place that God had assigned for the worship. It's known as Mount Moriah. When Abraham saw the place, a very, a very well-chosen word by the author because it's the Hebrew way of saying this is a designated holy place, a place of sanctuary, a place of sacrifice. And Abraham told the men, you stay here with the donkey. And then Abraham took the wood off the donkey and he put it onto the back of his son Isaac. And what we might have feared as, as readers as we're reading this A little sense of suspicion is rising up in our own thoughts. Maybe Isaac is the sacrifice. And of course, that's what God told him to do. So Abraham took the fire and the knife and they went. And as they continue, we can imagine that both of them are silent along the way. Perhaps both of them are thinking, what is the meaning behind all of this? You know, Abraham had three days to think about what he knew about God about what he knew of God's promises, about the covenant that God made with him and the future importance of his own son. So we should slow this down, because the author does. The author slows us down as we're reading this, and we have to notice something very important to the story. Abraham said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey. My son and I are going to go over there and we're going to worship, and we will be back. Now, we have, to under, we have to wonder, what in the world is he thinking? What, what does he mean by this? He is on his way to sacrifice his son. He has no indication that, that anything other than the death of his son is going to be the result of his worship experience of God. So how is it that Abraham will bring Isaac back with him? There is nothing to indicate to Abraham that God is somehow going to intervene and stop him at the very last moment. And what's crucial to this story is the cultural background in which he lived. Nobody in Abraham's day, nobody, absolutely no one, ever thought people come back from the dead. We think that way. Nobody did in Abraham's day. In Abraham's day, everybody thought, yeah, there's some sort of life after death, some sort of murky darkness in which we're all roaming. But to raise, uh, come back from the dead, absolutely impossible, laughable in fact. That idea of the resurrection did not show up in Israel's history until very late. So what is this man thinking? What is Isaac thinking? So they continue, right? They're, they're continuing their trek, and Isaac has got to be thinking something. He is surely wondering, what are the implications of me carrying the wood for the sacrifice on my back? That might have been the reason that prompted his question. You know, it's a logical question, albeit a frightening one, that any 17-year-old would ask his father. Look at verses 7 and 8. And Isaac said to Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so 
They both of them went on together. Now, we have to pause here. I just, I, I just have to mention this. We have to pause for a moment and just admire the literary, artistic uh, 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 writing of this passage. Moses is probably the writer, very, very many, many accept that Moses wrote Genesis. And he has poignantly slowed down this action. It's a quiet scene, but filled with a lot of intense emotion. These two men are bound together. They're hiking together. They are brought together as worshiping companions in a moment of decisive obedience to the Lord. The dialogue is sparse. It's intimate. It's even touching. And Isaac is the one who broke the silence. I mean, a natural curiosity of a a 17-year-old young man. Father, he says, we have the wood. We have the fire. But we don't have a lamb. Where are we going to get a lamb? Abraham says, son, God will see to it that there's a lamb for the burnt offering. Now, Abraham's response is a bit ambiguous, but what's not ambiguous about his response is that he knows for certain the source of all sacrifices, God, God himself. God will provide. God will see to it. You know, Isaac doesn't say another word, and we can only assume that he is entrusting himself entirely, entirely to his father's submission to this heavenly God who has called him and walked with him for so many years and called him his friend. Well, then we come to the high point of the crisis in this drama in verses 9 through 10. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order, And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, I wonder if you recall what your emotional reaction was the first time you ever read this story. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this story. I was wondering, does this story trouble you? Do you recoil at the thought of God being this way? Has it ever crossed your mind that God would ask such a thing, even let alone of a parent? Do you wonder, have you ever wondered, is God really that cruel? You know, there are few stories in the Bible that seem to assault the sensibilities of modern readers like this one. Uh, In an age of outrage, outrage seems too tame a word to describe some reactions. The atheist Richard Dawkins, author of the book The God Delusion, called this story, quote, a disgraceful example of child abuse and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. Well, what Dawkins and other critics like him missed entirely was one important word in the very first verse, and that word is test. God designed a test to expose the heart of Abraham to a life-defining question. Do you love me more than the most treasured thing you have in this world? From the beginning, God enrolled Abraham in the school of learning to walk by faith, not by sight. You know, for Abraham, there were no textbooks. There was no Bible. It was just him and God. Everything he knew about God, God had revealed himself to Abraham through real-life situations. And here he is. 
He's at his final exam. How would he do? How would he do on this test? This was a pass or fail test. There's only one answer that gets you passed. The stakes could not be higher for Abraham. On his answer hangs the fate of the entire world because God had planned for salvation for sinners through Christ, Abraham's greatest descendant. So without Isaac, there'd be no Jacob. If there's no Jacob, there's no Judah. If there's no Judah, there's no David. And if there's no David, there's ultimately no Jesus. Without Jesus sent into the world to save sinners, there's no cross, there's no resurrection and empty tomb, there's no gospel, and get this, there would be no cornerstone church. Because there would be no people who were saved, no believers. So, how did Abraham do on his test? Well, of course he passed. Let's look at what happened. Verse 10 through 13. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took his knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You know, if we were watching a movie at this point, we would all expel all that bottled up air that's been in our lungs. We would all do it together. But you know, that doesn't solve our problem. The questions about God still linger. Who is this God? Why is he doing this? There may be other questions that might come to your mind. It certainly did to mine. If God were to ask me to do something like this, how would I respond? Well, it should come as no surprise to us as Christians that God is going to test our faith. Peter told us God would do it. From 1 Peter 1, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness, there's the word again, again, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The goal of God testing our faith is twofold. First of all, God is asking us the same kind of question that he asks of Abraham, asked of Abraham, and that is a life decisive question. Do you love me more than the greatest treasure that you have on earth? How we answer depends on whether or not we would fulfill the second purpose of God's test, and that is to praise and glorify and honor the Son through our trials. Our trials, think of our trials as a stage on which the glorious grace of Christ is seen. The Spirit of Christ rests on us, the Spirit of Christ resides in us, and gives us the strength to trust in the promises of God so that we show that Christ is more valuable than any object we possess. A passing grade for the test provides evidence that our faith is genuine. So the final scene on Mount Moriah has two significant points for us to consider. First of all, in verses 13 to 14, let's look at this. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by, the, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. You know, this is one of those texts that a whole sermon could be devoted to. It speaks of God's providential seeing and providing. And in this case, we are, interest, we, we are introduced to really the central teaching of the Bible. From beginning to end, the Bible is teaching the story about God's provision of substitutionary atonement for sinners. In this case, it's a substitute for Isaac, the ram. Isaac didn't die. The ram did. Provided by God, the ram will die in his place. But we're given a glimpse into the providence of God because his future plans go from Mount Moriah to eternity. Many Hebrew scholars have translated verse 14 this way. The mount of the Lord, in the mount of the Lord, God will see to it. But you've got to wonder, what, what will God see to? He will see to it. That the substitute sacrifice for sinners is provided. Mount Moriah became the place where Solomon built the temple in which substitutionary sacrifices were offered two times every single day for God's people. But God saw to it that there would be a better sacrifice that could be provided for sinners. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, the Hebrews writer confirms it. Here's what he says. In Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So, what was it? How did Abraham pass this test? What lesson can we learn from his life so that when we face our tests of faith, we can respond with wisdom? You know, we probably will not face as formidable a test as Abraham did. But it doesn't matter to us. Our tests are always formidable to us. It could be, it could be, it could be loss the loss of a job. It could be gain, the gain of a new job with a huge salary. Whatever the next test of faith might be, we can look at Abraham and his way through the test to build up and strengthen our own faith. So let's look again at Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19 because I think the answer lies here. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. I think the key to Abraham's maturing faith lies in that one word in verse 19, considered. Abraham's faith is not a blind leap into the darkness, hoping. Nor did he just lean back and casually say, hey, God's got this. I'm going to not worry. I'm not going to fret. He went to work. He had three days to work out in his mind and in his heart, reasoning through everything he knew about God. This word considered is used 40 times in the New Testament, and it means to think, to reckon, 
to count, to esteem the worth of someone or something. And the definition that I like best is to occupy your mind with calculations. And I think this gives us a glimpse into the heart of what Abraham was doing those three days as they traveled to Mount Moriah. He was thinking. He was calculating. He was weighing the facts of things that he knew about God and, and, the, and these things that seemed to be competing with his knowledge of God. He, he was thinking of God's promises and God's character and God's wisdom up against the possible death of his own son and the, uh, the future role that he had to play in salvation history. Everything that Abraham had learned about God was being poured into his thinking. Remember, Abraham had no Bible. All he had was his relationship with God. But by processing everything that he knew about God and about his faith, faithfulness, Abraham came to trust God with the one thing he cherished most in this world, Isaac. This is the heart of biblical worship. Complete submission. Nothing withheld wholeheartedly valuing God, Christ, above everything else. What Abraham did could be called faithful reasoning. Faithful reasoning is a process of calling to mind God's revealed character, his promises, his commands, and the information all put together as a spotlight to, to shed light on the situation in front of me. We see faithful reasoning in Abraham, and it freed him. It freed him to be willing to sacrifice his own son. And because he reasoned from God's revelation of himself and his faithful character and his unchanging promises, Abraham came to the conclusion that nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too wonderful for God. Even being able to raise Isaac from the dead, if God needs to, just to keep his promise, he'll do it. Abraham had very personal experiences with God in this regard. Now, just think about it. He saw God overcome his own impotence from his nearly dead body, reproductively speaking, and give to Sarah the reproductive power to conceive a child when she had been barren for 90 years. He reasoned that if God could do these things that spoke about death in his life, he could do something as wonderful as raise his son from the dead. This is the faithful reasoning of the biblical disciple. If God promises descendants through Isaac and Isaac dies, then the promises and purposes of God will die. But Abraham's relationship with his friend told him, God will never let his purposes die. If God lets his purposes die, he can't be God. He'd go out of existence. Abraham knew that the judge of all the earth would do right. Everybody else can lie, but God is going to remain true to his word. That was the faithful reasoning of Abraham. But there's another side to this story that shines even brighter from Mount Moriah, and that's and that the author of Hebrews wants to put his light on Christ for us to consider to strengthen our own faith during trials and temptations. Look at that word that's right there at the end of verse 19. It's, well, it's, it's a phrase, actually. It says, figuratively speaking. Now, in Greek, that phrase is just one word, and it's a word every single person in this room knows. It's the word parable. 
Now, who knows the Sunday school definition you were taught for parables? Somebody you know it? Somebody want to say it out loud? What? Stories, yes? <laughs> have, have you heard this definition? A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Have you never heard that? No? You guys got to go to Sunday school. Where is Miss Lauren? Okay, that's the meaning of parable. Listen, it's, it's a Sunday school definition. If you grew up in church in Sunday school, you would have heard that definition. But the fact of the matter is, when I was in seminary, our, our, our parables professor used that definition. So, you know, some things are just plain simple, no matter where you go. Okay, so it's a parable. And what the writer is doing here is purposely using that word to point us to the meaning behind Abraham's story. Now, Abraham's story is very, very real, but the author is using the story as a kind of parable to point us to Christ's death and resurrection. For two millennia, the church has looked at this episode in Genesis 22 as a prophetic pointing forward to the time when God the Father would sacrifice God the Son, His own Son, as the definitive answer to Isaac's question, where is the Lamb? And that answer came roughly a little over 2,000 years later in the preaching of John the Baptist. And one day when Jesus was walking by, John pointed out to him and said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there were plenty of disciples with him John, who was the brother of James, and Andrew, who was the brother of Peter, were there. And they left immediately to go talk to Jesus. They had been waiting for this Messiah to come. What they didn't know and didn't understand at the time was that Jesus was the last lamb to be sacrificed forever because God would use that sacrifice and his resurrection to save sinners all the rest of history. And so... Jesus suffered this horrible death. And the idea that Abraham, it, it, when we think about the idea of Abraham offering up his own son, it, it may repulse us, but what are we to make of God who did that voluntarily and willfully offering up his own son? As the prophet Isaiah said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God has put him to grief. Jesus suffered a horrible death that he didn't deserve because he was sinless. He was guiltless. He never said anything sinful. He never did any sinful or unlawful act. Everything he did was born out of love for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And yet, he was despised, rejected, executed. So, what was the purpose for God putting his own son to such a public death? The answer lies in another part of Isaiah's prophecy. He said, uh, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus bore the sins of many. And you and I are in that number. Now consider what it means to stay offended at God and what he has offered through Christ. First of all, we expose a foolish pride in our own hearts. We cut ourselves off from the only hope of salvation offered to humanity. 
But if we humble ourselves to receive the offer of the forgiveness of sins, then we are connected to the only hope of salvation that there is. Outside of Christ, there is no other way of salvation. All other ways are dead ends because God has provided the only way of salvation in Christ. You know, Abraham named that place Jehovah-Jireh, which means God will provide or the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, God saw to it that the world would have a lamb who would take away our guilt and make us acceptable before God as righteous and also have a part in the victory of Christ over those twin evils that plague us always, sin and death. It's a reasonable thing to consider just a few weeks before we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. A reasonable faith says this, God has seen to it to provide a substitute to die in my place, taking on himself the shame and the guilt of my sin. He's not a ram, he's not a lamb, but he's a person, the very sinless son of God, whom God dearly loves. God says he's the lamb that sinners need. I'm a sinner. I need this substitute. Where is my lamb? He's Christ. God keeps his promises. God promises that when we obey the gospel and submit our lives to God, trusting in the substitute that he has provided, he will forgive our sins, free us from the penalty of those sins, free us from the guilt of those sins. He will make us alive to God and give us a new hope in the resurrection from the dead that is promised to every person who reasonably trusts in him. This is the blessing that God has planned for the whole world, for all of the families of the earth through Abraham. This is, what, this is exactly what God was promising to the world, and it's here, and it's here for us now. This is the blessing that God plans for you. And I urge you to receive this promise to trust in Christ and be saved. Will you join me in prayer? I want to pray for a couple of different kinds of people here tonight. First of all, for those who uh, need to put their faith in Christ, and then for those who just need stronger faith. And if you need stronger faith, I want to pray for you. Actually, I'm praying for me, but I'll let you in on it if that's all right with you. Let's pray. Lord, you know all hearts. You know that nothing is hidden from your eyes. You know hearts that want to come to you for forgiveness, but they are timid. It reminds me of me the way I was before I came to you. I was timid. I was afraid. I was scared. I, I didn't know what might lie ahead, but I wanted to. Plus, I was unsure if you would receive me. Well, God, you received everyone who comes to you. And so I pray that you would show those here tonight who want the Father's forgiveness that you would show them your father's, their father's heart, that he comes to them without hesitation to draw them to the Son in bonds of love that they might trust in his righteousness and call you Father. And Father, I want to pray for those of us who need stronger faith tonight. 
We thank you for caring for us through this very difficult year. We thank you for carrying us through all the uncertainties that we faced for the last 12 months, trials, the pain of hard losses. We thank you for showing us how much we need to depend on you, how fragile we are, how life is like a vapor. So help us now to keep our focus on you, on your promises, to see our trials in the light of your eternal grace. Cause us to treasure Christ above all things in this world so that when trials come our way and they get really fiery, we are not shaken from our devotion to you. And remind us that you will never leave us or forsake us. You've made a covenant with us, O God, through your Son. You will not break that covenant. And we pray that you will surround us with your favor as a shield. We pray this in your Son's name. Everybody said, Amen.